Well, over the last several messages, I have been ministering from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. And every time I open the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, I feel kind of like my heart has just went and visited a massage therapist. How many of you know when you go to a massage therapist, you should walk away feeling refreshed? I mean, what would be the point in paying for something like that if you didn't feel refreshed? You feel less tension. You feel more at rest. And that's how I feel when I go to this amazing book we call Galatians. I think it has become my favorite letter, my favorite book. I believe that Paul's letter to the Galatians was designed to grow a deeper root system in their hearts and a deeper understanding of their identity in Christ. I believe that's why he wrote this book it was penned so that like a lantern, it could illuminate so that they could find their way out of the darkness of the old covenant and into his glorious light, the glorious light of the gospel of grace. So Paul opens his letter to the Galatians, I love this, by reminding them there is one gospel. I think there are things in life that we need to be that emphatic about. He's reminding them as he opens that letter, there is one gospel. I'm talking about the gospel that brings freedom and liberty. I'm talking about the gospel that ushers in peace and rest. I'm talking about the gospel that takes our hearts to a massage therapist. I'm talking about the gospel that removes the curse. I'm talking about the gospel that unveils perfect love, that gospel. So today I want to minister for a little while through a message I'm calling the gospel without fear. We live in a world where there is so much anger. Now friends, if you don't believe that, then you're either in denial or you live in isolation. From the 30-minute drive every morning to work, I see road rage and fits of anger going on literally every day. I get to work and I find anger at the workplace. I go shop and I go out to eat. I see anger, outbursts of anger. And the one thing that I know about anger is anger is a secondary emotion. In other words, it's not the root of the problem, it's the fruit of the problem. And the root of anger is fear and pain and frustration. And so out of that fear, out of that emotional anguish and pain, out of the frustrations that are building on the inside of us, we have these outbursts of anger. All of these things are the things we experience if we put ourselves under the law. We feel fear because we never measure up. We feel emotional pain because we so often feel like a failure. And we feel 
frustration. I think that's probably one of the bigger ones. You're just always frustrated because it's always based on performance and we never feel like we perform well enough. Let me ask you a question. What causes all of this fear, pain, and frustration? Well, for the unbeliever, that is the person that doesn't know Jesus Christ, I believe it's because they have never been introduced to the gospel without fear. For the believer, the person that does know Christ, I believe it's because they have not been introduced to the gospel without fear. The very word gospel means good news. How can you have good news and fear cohabitating? We understand they're not both from God. They just don't make good roommates. Really, they don't. So one of the points I really want to make is we never need to be afraid of our Father God, even when we have failed. I have said it before. I'll say it again, and I'll probably say it again and again. Failure is an event, not a person. It's an event. I don't like the event any more than you do, but that's what failure is. It's just an event. And if we see it that way, then we don't allow condemnation and guilt and shame and fear to drive us and to move us and to paralyze us. Papa says, come to me even in the midst of failure and disappointment. Papa says, come to me when you're dealing with fear and you're dealing with pain and frustration. At the throne of grace, we find an abundance of mercy, an abundance of grace, an abundance of God's love, abundance of God's provision. We find an abundance of acceptance. There is zero anger in the Father when we come to his throne of grace. Why? Because there is no fear. Remember, anger is a secondary emotion typically driven by fear and pain and frustration. So we never need to approach the what we call the throne of grace. And we go there in our hearts. We go there in our minds. We never need to go there thinking that the Father's angry with us because he has no fear. He doesn't have the pain that we have like that. And he doesn't have the frustrations like we do. Now, you think I can fully explain that? It's hard because he sees everything and he knows everything. Yes, I believe his heart hurts when he sees all the chaotic things going on in the world. I believe that. I believe his heart aches, if you will, when people want to still follow the law rather than what Jesus did on the cross through grace. But he knew about all that before Jesus went to the cross, before he formed the world. He knew all these things were going to happen. There's no fear in the Father. Why? Because perfect love casts out all fear. What is God? God is perfect love. Perfect love does away with fear. At the throne of grace, there is no shunning there is no shaming, only acceptance, only outpouring of the Father's heart. So the Galatians that the Apostle Paul wrote to were kind of a mixed bunch. They were comprised of both the Jew and the Gentile converts. 
On one hand, Paul was writing to converts that were originally steeped very deeply in the Mosaic law. These are the Jews, the Jewish converts. In the same letter, the Apostle Paul is writing to Galatian converts. And many, if not most, of those Galatian converts had originally been involved in polytheism. Polytheism is the belief system or the worship, if you will, in many gods, many gods. So if you think about the two groups of people that he's writing to, yes, he calls them all Galatians. You have the Jews who believe in, yes, one God, many rules. The Gentiles, many gods, no rules. So you can see he's got to take a letter that he's got to make fit in every single one of their hearts. Only the Spirit of God could do something like that. Paul's intent was to collectively draw the Galatians' heart back to the massage table, back to the very truth that had lit their way out of condemnation and law. Paul wanted the Galatians to see that the gospel of grace was incongruent with the law. That means they are not similar. They are not compatible. Actually, that's one of the themes he repeats over and over throughout the book of Galatians. The law and grace are not similar. The old covenant and the new covenant are not compatible with one another. Grace mixed with the law is about as nauseating as it would be for me to think about mixing sardines with ice cream. I mean, think about it for a second. Let me just see if I can prove this point. If I could talk to the senior people in this room and say, listen, you've ate a lot of meals. You've sat down across the table with a lot of people in your life. Have you ever in your life seen anybody get a couple scoops of chocolate ice cream and then open up a can of sardines and just dump all that in there and mix it all up together? Never seen it, have you? I knew you wouldn't have because our taste buds are just not compatible with that combination. Now, I like sardines once in a great while. We've got a can that's been sitting in the pantry for about six months. I don't know. I just, like I said, once in a while. And everybody likes ice cream. I mean, you got your favorite ice cream that you love. But have you ever thought about mixing them together? No. Nobody in their right mind would crave such a quizzical mixture. It just wouldn't happen. And that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at in the book of Galatians. He's saying it is a combination that is not fitting. When you take an obsolete covenant and you try to bring it over and mix it together with the new covenant of grace, and we do it in ways that are so subtle that we don't even realize we're doing it. Because if you ask somebody, do you mix law with grace? Everybody would say no. But if you just listen to their words for a few minutes, you'll find there's a lot of law still in there. There's a lot of legalism still in there. And so it is when one mixes the Mosaic law with grace, the old covenant with new covenant, sardines with ice cream, and the apostle Paul had zero tolerance for mixture. Why? Because he knew 
that there was no way to rid ourselves of the slave mentality apart from total abandonment of the law. He knew that there was no way to shed fear and pain and harassment and frustration while under the law. Within the framework of the old covenant, it worked fine. Within the framework of the new covenant, it works fine. But if you take those two covenants and you allow them to collide together and become one, it creates an offensive and toxic and repulsive concoction. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, we find these words. The Apostle Paul is about to draw a picture for us that is so vivid about the separation of covenants that, man, I don't know how you could miss it. I really don't. He says these words. He says, tell me, you who want to be under the law. Now, do you believe that there's anybody that wants to be under the law? Well, it's hard to imagine, but there actually are people. I know people personally, people that I'm very close to that have said, I'd rather be under the law because the law gives me a checklist. It gives me a list of do's and don'ts. And I can use my own metric system of did I keep the law to measure with whether or not I'm good enough in God's sight. So the Apostle Paul realizes I've got people that I'm writing to that feel that way. So he says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now I find this interesting because the Apostle Paul reached all the way back and got Abraham. Abraham lived before the law, but he's wanting to make a point that is so vivid that he says, listen, I know a story that happened to Abraham that I can use that is going to be so striking that you're going to see the difference between law and grace and what to do about it. So he reaches all the way back and he says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. Now let me talk about this for a second. He says here that he had two sons. One, the Bible says, was born according to the flesh. Now, Jesus himself in, I believe it was John chapter 6, he actually said, he said, the spirit is the one who gives life. He says, the flesh counts for nothing. How was that first son born? He was born by the flesh. In other words, he was born by natural means. Listen, he didn't need a promise from God. He just made it happen. He was born by the flesh, not trusting in God. The flesh counts for nothing. Jesus said, the words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Now, I want to draw two columns in your mind here for just a moment. I want to draw column A and I want to draw column B because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in this narrative. In column A, we have Hagar. In column B, we have Sarah. In column A, we have Ishmael, the one born after the flesh. In column B, we have Isaac, the one born according to a divine promise. Hagar, they call her the slave woman. Sarah, they call her the free woman. Hagar is referred to and compared to Mount Sinai. What happened on Mount Sinai? Moses received the law there. That's where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And the Apostle Paul 
is drawing our attentions to say, look, I want you to see who I'm comparing her to. Sarah, on the other hand, represents Jerusalem from above. Hagar, the Bible says, has no inheritance, neither her nor her son, yet Sarah is the one with the inheritance, Isaac. Tell me you who want to be under the law. Are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. He says, these things are being taken figuratively. He says, the women represent two covenants. In other words, he's saying, Hagar and Sarah, I want you to see them. I want you to see their lives. I want you to see their promises. He said, those two women represent two covenants. Now we know he's speaking about the old covenant and he's speaking about the new covenant. Those are the covenants. And he says, one covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. And now he names this woman. He said, this is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. Children of promise. That means yes and amen, not yes, amen, and flesh. No, it's yes and amen attached to God's promise. He said, at the time the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit, and he says it is the same now. And friends, it has not changed. I don't persecute anybody that wants to have a law-driven mentality, but I'll tell you what, they'll cut you off quicker than someone cuts you off in traffic. They'll cut you off because your message is so radically different. Our message has life. Our message is pointing to Christ. Our message is pointing to his finished work. Our message is pointing to the centerpiece of grace. He said it is the same now. But then I love the question he asked. He says, what does the scripture say? In other words, he's saying, now, not only what does the scripture say, but how do you interpret it? I think that's a more important question, not just what does the scripture say, but how do you interpret it? In other words, he's just went down a list and he's compared two women. He's compared their sons. He's compared them as slave and free and Mount Sinai and this and Jerusalem, the cities above. You can see he's drawing a stark line right down the center between these two people. He says, what does the scripture say? Now look at those words. Get rid of the slave woman and her son. Those seem like hard words because this son was Abraham's firstborn son. He had wanted a son for eons. He was 86 years old when he had Ishmael. This is his firstborn son. And the scriptures are saying, get rid of the slave woman and her son. Why? Because this was not the promised son that Abraham was given. Had he have waited upon God's promise, Isaac would have come. But Abraham wanted to hurry things along, and so he took Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar, and through the flesh, through the natural means, had a child with her. Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Do you see the Apostle Paul's heart? As he's writing to them, he's saying, man, I want to make this so elementary for you guys so that you get this. I'm going to make a comparison. I'm going to put a whole bunch of stuff in one pile. I'm going to put a whole bunch of other things in another pile. And ultimately, you get to choose, but choose well. I mean, friends, come on. If you laid a $5 bill in one hand and 100 in the other and said, choose one, I mean, come on, I don't need a committee to figure out which one has more value to it. Especially when you've already told me, get rid of the slave woman and her son. She's not going to share in the inheritance. And I'm concerned about my future. I'm concerned about my family, my lineage, where I'm going, my destiny. I want to be in the land of living. And Abraham did exactly what he was told to do. It was probably a heartbreaking day, but he put a backpack on Hagar and a backpack on Ishmael and he sent them out into the desert. That doesn't mean God's blessing wasn't on Hagar. And that doesn't mean that God's blessing wasn't on Ishmael. They did prosper where they went. But God is trying to show us. He's trying to show us in advance. He's given us an idea in advance what this gospel of grace looks like. And how powerful it is. Under the law, it's an all-or-nothing proposition. Under the law, there is no lantern to light the way out of fear, pain, and frustration. Why? Because Jesus is the light of the world, and he that followeth him shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Sin put all humanity in prison, and guess what? The law had no keys to unlock the prison cell. Oh, it would come and visit you. But it had no ability to let you out. That's not the law's job. The Spirit of God is the one with the keys to release us. Under the law, there is no early release from prison for good behavior. Under the law, there is no massage therapist for our hearts. There is no Jerusalem from above. There is no lantern to light our way out of darkness. In James chapter 2 and verse 10, we see these words. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. If I was not aware of what I have under the new covenant of grace, that scripture would be frightening to me. And it should be to anybody. Because in other words, what it's saying, all the commandments you have obeyed up to this point, that can't help you. They don't count. All the miles you've ran in your journey don't count. It's all or nothing under the law. There was a man that was born in the late 1800s. His name was Dorando Pietri. He was from Italy. And Dorando was a marathon runner in the 1908 games in London. It was a marathon that was 26 miles, 385 yards. I didn't know why they would add on that little extra, but it was based upon where they started and where they wanted it to end. That was the total distance. Pietri was at the brink of exhaustion as he entered what was called White City Stadium at the end of the marathon. And 
as he comes into White City Stadium, he is so delirious from running 26 miles. He's a 22-year-old man, but he's staggering like a drunk 90-year-old man, just absolutely exhausted. And he collapsed just a few feet in front of the finish line. And the officials came over and they picked him up and got him dusted off and he started walking. Then he ran a little bit and down he went again. He collapsed several times trying to cross that finish line. And although Pietri crossed the finish line before any one of the other men, he was disqualified because the officials helped him up. Now, if you Google the gold, silver, and bronze medalist winners' names for that marathon, Durando's name is not listed. And I thought, all of that training, all of that equipping, all of that pain, all of that sacrifice, all of that determination, yet disqualified. Because he stumbled at the end and was helped up by the officials. But there was a woman among the tens of thousands in that stadium. It was Queen Alexandra. And Queen Alexandra knew who the real winner was. And in a private ceremony, even though he was disqualified from the gold and silver and bronze medal, she gave him a golden cup because she wanted to honor him. That just falling at the end doesn't disqualify you. Friends, I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for the scripture that declares, my ways are not your ways. Neither are your thoughts my thoughts. For my ways and my thoughts are as high above your ways and thoughts as the heavens are from the earth. Friends, you and I are never disqualified when we stumble. The Holy Spirit will help us up. He always does. We stumble at times. We're frustrated at times. The Bible declares in Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 16 these words. The godly man may fall seven times, <laughs> but he will rise again. The godly man. That means the one that the Spirit lives inside of, not just the one who has perfect behavior. Oh, we've got a misinterpretation for the word godly. I'm talking about the one who the Spirit lives on the inside of him. The Bible says he may fall seven times. The number seven is the perfect number, which means an unlimited amount of times. But he said he will rise again. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is helping him up. With the law, it's an all or nothing proposition. It's you without a helper. The gospel of grace gives us a helper. His name is Holy Spirit. This is good news, and this is the gospel without fear. According to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, I don't have the PowerPoint slide for it, but it's on my heart. We quote this so often, we say, well, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Yes, but that's not the entire verse. 
That's a portion of it because it goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, the wages of sin is death. Of course it is. That means somebody had to die for sin. That somebody has a name and he did die, not for his sin, but for our sin. He had no sin. The Bible says he had no sin. His name is Jesus Christ and he died for your sin. He died for my sin. He died not only to take our sins away, but he died so that he could set us free from condemnation and the law of sin and death. Do you understand? There is a law called the law of sin and death. And Jesus died for us so that he could take away not only our sins and our condemnation and our fear and our pain and our frustration, but he died so that he could take away the law of sin and death. We see that truth in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. I love these verses. Therefore, why would he start off chapter 8 with a therefore? Well, you'd only know that if you read chapter 7. In chapter 7, the apostle Paul says, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? I thank my God that Jesus Christ has delivered me from this body of death. And then that's where it ends. In the very next verse, we start a new chapter. Therefore, that therefore is tied to Jesus's death. And he says, for that reason, I'm going to point to that reason that Jesus Christ died for me. He said, therefore, for that reason, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, look at this, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Friends, we have been set free from the law. There is a law in place that says the man that sins shall surely die. But God said, no, I'm going to send Jesus. And when he dies on the cross, he's going to set you free from that law, that law of sin and death. So you can walk around and go, I don't have any condemnation in me. I'm not walking around with fear and pain and frustration developing into outbursts of anger. No, because I'm drawing my heart back to the massage table where Jesus says there's plenty of grace all his fingers that are massaging your heart are just loaded with grace seeping out into your body and into your mind therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death now it says for what the law was powerless to do. What is he talking about? The law had no keys. Friends, I don't even have the power to get in my car if I don't have keys. And if I did get in it, what am I going to do now? And he's saying the law didn't have that kind of power. It didn't have the ability to set you free. And that's why he's saying for what the law was powerless to do, the law's purpose was to tell you you failed. That's the purpose of the law. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. It was weakened by man's ability to want to try to help things out. He said it was weakened by the flesh. 
He said, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. He didn't condemn you. He condemned sin. The Bible says there is no condemnation. And that word, no, I love this word. It's a little word with a big, big heart. It comes from two Greek words, ude and heis. Put together, it is the Greek word udais. Ude means not, and heis means even one. Not even one condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Not even one. So it's not like there was a record and you're like, you're doing good now. No, not even one. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, love, love keeps no record of wrongs. What kind of love am I talking about? I'm talking about God's perfect love. He said it keeps no record of wrongs. Friends, I'm telling you, if you were to die right now and go to heaven, and you're concerned about what you did on Saturday afternoon. <laughs> the Bible says in the twinkling of an eye, you'd be there. There'd be a father waiting for you with just loving embrace. Put his arms around you and tell you you're accepted in the beloved because of what Jesus has done. Because of my son's sacrifice, you're accepted. You're loved. I get passionate about this. Sometimes I feel like I need to apologize. Other times I just say, no, I don't need to apologize. It, this messes me up. So the question, how do we walk in no condemnation? There's a question for you. How do we walk in no condemnation? How do we live without fear, pain, and frustration? By believing that faith was the very key that turned the tumbler of the prison cell and released us from the custody of the law. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 23, these words. He says, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. Doesn't that sound like a prison? <laughs> when you hear this guy's in custody, what are they saying? He's behind bars. And that's what the law did. It put us behind bars in a sense. He said we were held in custody. It means we didn't have the rights like we have right now. God came and he gave us rights. He gave us the ability. He gave us the privilege. We have rights in the kingdom of God. And when we wake up to that glorious truth that we are more powerful than we know, we have kingdom rights and kingdom responsibilities. We really begin to flourish. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Another way to say this is while we were in prison, faith came along with keys and released us from our prison. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus' finished work is one of the deepest tissue massages your heart will ever get. Faith in God's unconditional love for us gives us access into the gospel without fear. How many of you know that it's impossible to stand on the moon and the earth at the same time? Can, I mean, can I get an amen on that? Just impossible. It's one or the other, right? Why? Because there's a distance problem. 200 and some thousand miles in particular. But through the shed blood of Jesus, he has put distance between the covenant of law and the covenant of grace. His blood has put distance between the believer and sin by separating them from us. They are as separated as far as the east is 
from the West. I like what I heard a minister say even this morning. He said, if you start heading East, he said, you will always be heading East around the globe. He said, you'll always be heading East. He said, but if you start to head North, you only head North for so long and then you'll be heading South. You see how that works? You can only head north so long, you're circling the globe, and you're going to be, you can get to the crown of the earth, and you're, now you're going to be heading south. But if you keep heading east, you're going to just keep going east. There's no point. You'll be heading west. You'll be going east the whole time. Pilate could tell you that. Friends, the Bible says that he has separated our sins, not as far as the north is from the south, but as far as the east is from the west. That's a great, great distance. His blood has put distance between the believer and their sin by separating them from us. Yet many believers find one foot on the moon and one foot on earth, one foot in grace and the other foot in the law. It shouldn't be that way. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. The Apostle Paul wrote these words. He said, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near, look how you get brought near, by the blood of Christ. That's how we are brought near to the Lord. That's how we're brought near to God, the Father, to Jesus, is by the blood of Christ. I hear people saying, I just want to draw closer. You're really as close as you're going to get. I mean, he lives on the inside of you. You can't get any closer, really. I understand what you're saying. You're saying, I want to feel his presence more. I want to hear his voice more. I get all that part, but we're as close as we're going to get. We were separated at one time. We were aliens. We were foreigners to the promise. But he said, by Jesus' blood, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, that is the Jew and the Gentile, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do it? Look what he says. By setting aside in his flesh the law. Please meditate on what's being said there. He set aside in his flesh. Out of all the things he could have said there, he didn't say he set aside in his flesh our sin. He said, I set aside in my flesh the law with its commands and regulations. I know you've read this scripture many times over the years, but it's very poignant that you see that right there, that he set aside in his flesh, Jesus's flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. Now, why? It tells you his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Does that fulfill the scriptures where it says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We become like him. We become as him, as the word says. His purpose was to create himself one humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Not through your good deeds, 
not through your performance. He reconciled us through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace. See, there's only a few places in the New Testament where it says the gospel of, the gospel of, we see the gospel of grace, we see the gospel of his dear son, and we see the gospel of peace. He said, he came and preached to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And that is the point I believe that the Apostle Paul was making when he penned what we know as Galatians chapter 5, he wanted the Galatians to see that they already possessed all the freedom they could possibly desire as long as they stood firm and didn't reintroduce the law into the covenant of grace. Friends, if you allow the law to be part and parcel of your covenant, it will no longer be the gospel without fear. The gospel comes from God. The Bible declares that God is love. In his perfect love, all of our fear is taken away. Therefore, we possess the gospel without fear. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we find this truth. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Look at the next words. He said, stand firm. Basically, he's saying, listen, I want you to rest in that truth. I want you to lock onto this truth like a bulldog would lock onto something. He said, stand firm. Don't let anybody move you off of that. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. And he says, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You say, what's the big deal about just being circumcised? Well, if you're trusting in anything to make you right with God, circumcision was part of the law. If you're trusting in anything, if your motivation is to, well, I've got to go have this done in order to be right. I've got to get a flu shot in order not to get sick. You know, I mean, anytime you put yourself under an obligation like that, he says, you're going to have to obey the whole thing. You can't just obey part of this thing. If you're putting yourself under the obligation of the law, then you have to obey it all. He said, you are obligated to obey the whole law. He said, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Now, I want to explain that scripture very briefly here because this is a scripture that terrifies a lot of believers that they have fallen from grace. This doesn't mean there's a loss of salvation. Salvation is a finished work. You cannot lose your salvation. This is a falling back from grace. It's a falling back into performance. It's a falling back into a fear-based life. It's a falling back into a painful life, emotionally painful. It's a falling back into a frustrated life. Grace is higher than the law. How many of you know that? Grace is higher than the law, definitely. And so when we put ourselves under the law, what we do is we fall from grace. Again, it's not a loss of salvation. It's just simply you are not operating in the kingdom principle of grace. That's all it means. It's not a scary scripture. 
He continues, he says, For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Do you see that? He says, listen, if you want to do it, then do it, but don't do it for the reason because Moses told you to do it. Moses is dead. The old covenant has been made obsolete. So don't do it for those reasons. You do it for other reasons. He says, but it means nothing whether you do it or you don't do it. It has no value. He said, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Isn't that amazing how he boils the gospel down? The only thing that really counts is faith. And then expressing that faith through love. He said, that's really the only thing that counts. Paul's statement of one gospel landed him in some precarious situations, including prison. Paul's unwillingness to back off of the message of one body ultimately cost him his life. Paul's unwillingness to back off of the message of one hope ultimately cost him his life. Paul's unwillingness to back off of the message of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one mediator, one God and Father, and one gospel ultimately cost him his life. There was something working in the Apostle Paul that was so real that he just said, I cannot back off of this message. The question becomes, what was Paul's motivation for disregarding such risk and then ultimately signing his own death certificate? Was it personal gain? No. Was it out of selfish ambition or envy or rivalry? Not at all. He said with his own words that he preached and defended the gospel out of love. That's the reason he did it. He did it because he loved people. Even though they were bratty at times, he loved them. Why? How could he get a heart like that? Because he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and Jesus became so real and personal and lived on the inside of him and he began to experience something he never knew under the Mosaic law. I mean, he was a Pharisee when he met Jesus on that road and he transformed his heart and his life. We see an excerpt of what I've just said there of these truths in the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians. And where did he write it from? He wrote it from prison. He was in prison. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, my closing scriptures. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. As I meditated upon that verse yesterday, I thought, he's saying, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, all the issues of life that he faced, all the prison time that he faced, the Apostle Paul was saying, listen, I could have turned off all this opposition, I could have turned off all this persecution, and I could have walked away like a high plains drifter. But there were hearts that still needed to be massaged, lanterns that needed oil, and there were people being disqualified because they tripped and fell. He said, so I stayed in the game. I said to myself one day, Daddy, 
I can't make up my mind. Part of me says, I want to go and be with you today. But there's a part of me that says, I need to stay because these people need to know the true heart of the Father. They need to know the gospel without fear. And he said, so daddy, you set the time. I don't want to go any sooner than I have to. And sometimes we want to get out of our messes so much quicker than it happens sometimes. I get that. Nobody likes pain. Nobody likes fear. Nobody likes frustration. I'm telling you, quit thinking about those things and set your heart on Christ. Set your heart on the one who bled for us. Set your heart on the one who's holy and lives on the inside of us. And all that other stuff will become like fairy dust and just fly right away. He goes on to say, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord. Why would you become confident? Because another man's in chains. Because you know there's something on the inside of that man. He knows something maybe that I don't know. Because he could renounce everything. He could walk away from all this stuff, but he's choosing not to. So what does that do? That breeds confidence. Paul was confident in Christ. He took command even in chaos. And he said, you know what? (laughs) They got me locked up again. What am I going to do? I'm going to write to the Philippians. I'm going to write them a love letter. I'm going to tell them about Papa. When you get caught in your most inopportune times, I want you to consider maybe writing somebody a love letter. I want you to consider picking up the phone and calling somebody and encouraging them because at the same time, everybody gets encouraged. I had a man call me yesterday morning. I'm studying for this message. He called me right out of the gate. He's a friend of mine. He lives a long ways away from there and he's just just sobbing. He's crying. And he said, he said, I don't know. He said, I'm crying. I'm thinking about you and I'm crying. I said, well, are they happy tears? He said, yes, they're very happy tears. He said, I've never done this before, but you're on my mind and I'm crying. I just can't stop crying. And he began to apologize. I said, friend, you're blessing my heart. You're encouraging me. I've been through some stuff. Like you, I go through stuff. I go through chaotic situations. But I never lose track of the one true gospel, the one true God. The one true hope that I have, I never lose track of that. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more, look at these words, to proclaim the gospel without fear. Friends, that was the inspiration for this message right there. The Apostle Paul said, there's such confidence on the inside of me. He said, that I proclaim the gospel without fear. Not only fear of what might happen to me. Oh, he resolved that a long time ago. But he said, when I stand before you, I'm as bold as a lion. There's no fear working on the inside of me. Why? Because perfect love has dealt with that fear. One of the first things the gospel of grace does for man is it delivers a death blow to fear pain, and frustration. The gospel of grace schedules an appointment with you. Had a massage therapist for your heart. 
The Apostle Paul continues in his letter. He says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter, he says. The important thing is that in every way, whether the motive is false or the motive is true, that Christ is preached. He said, that's what's important. Listen, let him deal with all the baggage you bring into the relationship with him. But you cannot bring a man into the kingdom without preaching Christ. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the door. You cannot bring a man into the kingdom apart from preaching Christ and his finished work. He said the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, what? Because of what? Because Christ is preached. He said, because of this, he said, I rejoice. That's the heart to have. Preach Christ. Don't preach philosophy. Don't just preach good advice. Preach Christ and his shed blood and his resurrection and his power and his glory and his honor and the fact that he has qualified every single one of you. He has qualified you. You see, the king sits there when we fall. And the king says, pick him up, Holy Spirit. Pick him up. And the Holy Spirit says, Daddy, Father, I'll be happy too. Carry him, Holy Spirit. Oh, I'll be happy too. Provide for him. I'll be happy too. Again, where did this much love come from in the Apostle Paul's heart? It came from his encounter with Jesus Christ and from him grasping the vivid revelation of grace that Jesus showed him in the time that he taught him. He saw the magnitude of the gift of grace and he fell in love with the giver of that grace. Friends, listen, there's not a gift that you can give me that I'll fall in love with the gift. Oh, I'll fall in love with the giver. I don't fall in love with stuff. It's just stuff. I'm in love with you. I'm in love with that woman down the hallway. I'm in love with Christ. I'm in love with this gospel. The Apostle Paul's message to the Philippians is transparent. The gospel is advanced when Christ is preached. As Jesus Christ is preached, we become more confident in the Lord's love for us. It is his perfect love that helps us to preach the gospel without fear. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us and massage us from this message today are these. The gospel is advanced when the gospel without fear is preached. When the gospel without fear is ministered, then the lamp on the inside of the man becomes the light of the world. The true gospel signs the death certificate 
for fear and pain and frustration. We never need to fear our Father because perfect love casts out all fear. In Christ, we have been delivered from the law and from condemnation. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ, for Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. In Christ, the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. In Christ, we are never disqualified because we fall while running our race. Through the gospel without fear, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Access into what you ask access into the gospel without fear. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you, Father. There's so much thanksgiving that is welling up in my heart. Not because of one single thing I've ever done, but because I can look across the timeline of Scripture and I can see how the precious Holy Spirit who helped these men write the scriptures could take and reach all the way back into Abraham and bring it up close front and center and show us that we are no longer under the law but we are under grace he showed us clearly that the law was sent away into the wilderness so thank you father that it was in the wilderness that Jesus began his ministry he started in a wilderness he ended up at a cross, Daddy, and through his shed blood on the cross, he released in us the gospel of grace. He opened the prison cells that we were in, and he said, it is for freedom that you have been set free. I want to thank you, Father, that we're not falling for the concoctions, things that are mixed together. No, it is either the pure gospel of grace or it means nothing, Daddy. Thank you, Father, for those that preach Jesus Christ across this world. Thank you, Father, that souls are being drawn even now, both in this country as well as all countries. Souls are being led to Christ. And thank you, Father, that the Holy Spirit holds on to everyone you give him. Jesus said, I have not lost even one. But, Father, as we run this race, and the Apostle Paul talked about he runs a race, there are going to be times where we stumble. There are going to be times where we seem so fatigued. Times when maybe fear will creep in. Maybe pain. Maybe anguish. Maybe frustration. But I want to thank you, Father, when we fall, we are not disqualified. The Bible says, yea, though a righteous man falleth seven times, he will rise again. But Daddy, we thank you. We thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.